championships, all-star nominations, coach of the year, and most valuable player awards. We all get into playing and coaching sports with the expectation of triumphant victories, exceptional performances, and moments of glory that will last a lifetime. However, if you have ever stepped foot on the field, you find out very quickly that our expectations are not often reality. Many times within minutes of a training, practice, or competition, we find that we have stepped in an unexpected ship in the middle of our trail to greatness. What we had hoped to happen did not. And now we have to figure out how to clean our shoes, buckle up the chin strap, and move forward. Welcome to the WAS Sports Leadership Podcast with hosts Joe DeRing and Dan Jaskot. We are sports people for the sports people who don't mind a little bit of dirt and grit, sharing our stories, insights, and commentary on all things sport. Ladies and gentlemen, good to see you back. Welcome to the WAS Sports Leadership Podcast. If you're wondering what WAS stands for, it stands for When Athletes Shit in the Woods. It's based off of an experience Joe and I had back in the day. Completely unexpected experience that basically was just the uppercut to the jaw that I didn't expect, Joe did not expect, the head coach of the football team did not expect, but we all had to buckle up the chin strap, overcome the unexpected mess, and make the most out of the situation. And that's what this podcast is all about. We are sports guys who don't mind a little bit of dirt and grit, here to share some stories, some insights. We have a great guest this week, Joel will introduce in a moment, and we're going to kick things off. Because this guy has talked that there might be a possible return to the ring, Iron Mike Tyson. Wow. He's been training, and word on the street is he, he dropped the Michael Jordan, I'm back, two-word press release. Oh and he has a great quote, one of my favorites. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And... This is what this podcast is all about. We get into things with the best of intentions. However, our true leadership shows in our ability to lead ourselves and other people through the proverbial shit in the woods when it happens. And that, that's what matters most here in sports. So, hey, I'm going to kick it right over to Joe because we got an awesome guest and I know he's full of stories tonight. Joe, let's uh, tell everybody about our guest of the week here. Yeah, super exciting to have Coach John Viggy on the podcast. John, welcome to the WAS Sports Leadership Podcast. We're glad to have you, brother. Thanks for having me, man. I'm excited. This is awesome. Good stuff. For our audience who may not know who John Viggy is, he is the man, the myth, the legend. Coach Viggy from the, the Central Florida West Coast uh, played ball for the University of South Florida, uh, went on to pro ball from 2001 to 2005, played pro ball starting in rookie league and into uh, single A ball and, and independent ball, and then started his coaching career. And that's really why we have Coach Viggy on the podcast tonight. Coach Viggy and I started uh, coaching together in 2018 when my then eight-year-old daughter said she wanted to give softball a try and so through a mutual contact I got put in touch with with coach John and uh, we went down to Fossil Park here uh, down in in Pinellas County and 
I remember it like it was yesterday, John, where Faith was out there on the field and and you were kind of like, all right, who is this kid? Who is this family? And I said, oh, coach, if you need a hand, let me know. And you would grab the couple bucket of balls and in one hand handed me a bucket and said, all right, you're in, let's go. <laughs> Not knowing. And from there we were running some soft hands drills and I've been running soft hands drills for John's teams ever since. So um, really looking forward to getting into to some of your experience and coaching and leadership and uh, hearing some fun stories about your playing days as well. Thanks for being here. No, thank you guys. Appreciate it. Yeah, John, thanks again. And we're excited to have you. And if our, if our pregame uh, huddle that we had the other night is any indication, this is going to be a hell of an episode here. Great insight as far as coaching and, and some, some great nuggets of knowledge for athletes. And uh, I, I, I think uh, I'll agree with Joe there. There's probably going to be some good laughing going on too throughout. So uh, we're going to get right rolling with it. And we'll, we'll get a little deeper into John's, Coach John's experiences uh, as we move deeper into the episode. But we're going to kick things off. We've got a lot of interesting things happening in sport. We're going to start off with our, tre- our In the Trenches segment here to hit on some hot topic items in sport. Most notably this week, we're going to focus on the return of professional baseball in the United States. The MLB has been working back and forth. They put together some plans here to get things started somewhere, possibly end of June, early July looking at, you know, roughly an 80-game season. It's an interesting topic. We're all baseball fans. And I think anybody right now is dying for a little bit of live sports, too. So put anything on TV, I think it'll have a crowd. But I was – The the South Korean baseball, right? (laughs) And it's on at 5.30 in the morning, Dan. And um, I'm usually up around then, and I definitely put it on. I mean, not not to listen to it or watch it, but just to have – something live on my tv for crying out loud yeah that's uh you gotta have a 5 30 is the late game that's like the evening game man you gotta you gotta be going one in the morning two in the morning to get the the west uh, coast game the the first uh first end of the double header there (laughs) but it's interesting because trevor bauer who is uh pitcher in the major leagues i believe he's with the i don't know who he's with right now he bounces around um he came out today and said Major League Baseball's proposals are laughable. And I don't see it as that. I see it as an organization trying to do some good and get, get a product back on the field. We're looking at the first interesting topic here. There is a radical realignment. There's going to be no more National League, possibly. No more American League. We're looking at an East, Central, and West. So we'll have the Yankees, Red Sox, I don't know if the or did the Orioles get shipped down yet to uh, to minor leagues or what? No. <laughs> oh, poor. Oz. And then the Rays, of course, who uh, can take things oh so far every year, but usually miss the playoffs. But then you're looking at the Braves, the Metropolitans, the uh, the Nationals. So East, Central, West. Trevor Bauer says laughable. Joe. What do you think about this new new realignment to try to make a Major League Baseball season happen? How do you feel about the Mets getting clobbered by my boys in pinstripes, you know, 20 times over the course of the season or 15 times? Well, I, I was against interleague play, and I'm against this proposal 100%. I'm a, I'm a traditionalist. I don't, I don't like interleague. I don't like the, the realignment idea, um, you know, 
you need you need to have some mystery between you know the American League and the National League. You need to have some differentiation between the divisions. I I believe that that uncertainty that bit of mystery between oh what would happen if this team played that team in a in a series i think that adds to the fan experience and i am completely against it and so john we'll jump over to you so this isn't something that they're proposing for you know baseball for the rest of our time it's something to try to get a season in this year right covid19 has backed everything up they're trying to limit travel so you got the team staying on the east coast you know, there'd be a trip to Canada to play the, uh, the uh, Blue Jays, you know, for the, uh, the East Division there. Um, what are your thoughts on this concept? And I, I don't think they're going to have like, a, like your traditional national champion and American champion. I think they're going to probably get it down to the top three and then whittle it down to a champion. What do you think about that realignment, East, Central, and West, John? You know what? I got to tell you, it's going to be – complicated to try to pull off in my opinion i think it's a in theory a great idea because you're going to limit travel but you're going to lose those interdivision rivalries that make baseball like what it is in sports in my opinion and you're going to lose that element of surprise what joe's talking about is actually really huge right i think from the player side of things you know you go into this playoffs and you've already played say we're the rays right you played the mets 15 times because you're on this side of the you know the coast and then, you know, you got to play them in a playoff series or in the World Series or whatever it may be. I think you kind of lose that nostalgia of, of what Major League Baseball is. Now, this is a screwy whole situation with this COVID thing. So, I, I mean, for them thinking outside the lines and trying to figure it out, limit travel, it's great. Uh, but I, I don't know if the players union is going to go for it, to be honest with you. I think it's kind of like Bauer said, laughable to the fact that they're going to try to just reshuffle the cards for an 82-game schedule and and hope something sticks. I, yeah. I think it could be complicated. Well, the good news is the Mets and the Rays won't be in the playoffs, so I guess we don't have to worry <laughs> about that too much. Hey, hey. <laughs> Shots fired. We're going to stick on this topic here. Another another proposal that came up, and I know I, know, I have a feeling I know what Joe's answer is going to be. The universal designated hitter yeah. is another proposal. Yeah. And that's something that might go beyond this shortened season. Joe, we're going to scratch you out. You can jump in after John. <laughs> Universal DH, you a fan or no, and why? Oh, it's funny you say that. So I was a pitcher, right? And I could hit. <laughs> and I always, you know, would, would have loved to have been in the National League. But the reality is the DH gives them uh, opportunities to keep some veterans in the game a long time, pay them to hit. And these pitchers, these quote, non-athletes that we have these days that are getting out there, getting hurt, um, just and they're paying them gazillions of dollars now, right? These stupid contracts for pitchers that uh, could get hit, hurt at any time. So owners, liability-wise, they're trying to limit that as exposure. And that's the theory behind this, in my opinion. Um, you know, this universal DH for this particular short season is because these pitchers are going to get kind of rushed through um, spring, uh, two week spring training and try to play games. So they're just, I, I feel like they're just trying to minimize it and it would allow another roster spot for a batter. So, you know, I'm kind of for it in this situation, long-term. I mean, I, I'm like Greg Maddox and uh, Tommy Glavin, you know, with the chicks dig the long ball. I like, I like <laughs> to hit. <you know? laughs> 
Any proposal that takes the double switch out of play, I'm against it. Yeah, yeah. well, to your point there, it, it, it changes the dynamics of actually managing. A right. Game. It's the strategy, the small ball. I am all for the National League style of play. I, I don't think that the, the designated hitter does anything more for the game. I think it's pure baseball at the National League level. And plus, with the DH, you're losing out on tremendous moments. Like a few years ago, Bar- Bartolo Colon hit his first major league home run. He's like 42 years old, 372 pounds, and the guy jerked one down the left field line. It was unbelievable. Right, for yeah. sure. No um, From a players' union standpoint, though, John, you bring a, g- a good point up because it's going to allow guys to stay in the game a little bit longer. You know, I – as a Yankee fan, I look at like Gary Sanchez behind the plate. He's not the best catcher in baseball from a defensive standpoint. Is there, and you know, maybe he's, he's probably not a first baseman either. Is there a spot, you know, for that guy to get an extra five years out of his career? You would think the player, you players union would be on board for the extra spot, the extra time in, in, in the league for those guys. And you're the only one that has somewhat close to that type of experience. So we're going to defer to you for that. Well, I think, I think there is a, a mixed bag to be honest with you there, that, that there is, I feel, a push for it universally and more so now they got interlock games, right? We're playing more interlocks and it, it puts that ease for that American League pitcher who hasn't been hitting then gets thrown out there because there's been cases of people getting hurt. But uh, it's a different age than it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago. These athletes, um, they're lifting more, they're bigger, they're stronger. Um, their bodies are tighter, so the, the feeling is if these pitchers aren't doing it on a regular basis, that they are more prone to getting hurt. Yep. And the fact that the money, I mean, you just break it down to the money. I think I mentioned it just a little bit ago. These pitchers are just making an absurd amount to start 30 games. And if you risk it in the one damn game that you play interlock and uh, you get hurt, you know, you keep mentioning your Yankees. What what was that foreign pitcher that hurt his Achilles because he couldn't run a first base for Christ's sake, right? Lost him for the year. Yep. So I think this the players' union does look at that point uh, and that fact because it get, it keeps the uh, the big poppies and the Edgar Martinez in the game a long time. These are Hall of Famers that had they not had DH, they would have been out of the game way faster as a pinch yep. hitter. You yep. know, so I think there is a push. But the old school um, coaches and the, the managers that if you sit down and talk the game with these guys, they love the National League style because it makes you actually coach and think of the double switch and think beyond that just that pitch, but the next inning, the next, you know, what are you going to do if you do a Absolutely. substitution? Yep. Yeah, now, and Joe, both you and Joe have brought up the idea of actually managing, and this is something I think it's Major League Baseball is trending in a different direction where – you're seeing like a guy like, you know, Girardi, who he's got a job now, but he was out of baseball for a couple of years because maybe, you know, was he a little too old school for these young GMs who are now, you know, they call you know, Cashman up here. They call him the puppet master. You, you know what I mean? So how, how much are these analytically driven numbers guys, you know, maybe, maybe people who've never put a freaking baseball glove on, like right. how much are they impacting the game right now with, you know, saying, Hey, manager, here's your lineup for the day. Hey, this guy's up. You have to, the second baseman has to be 16 paces from the bag, three paces in the outfield uh, grass because 72.9% of the time, this guy's hitting a dribbler here on this pitch. Like 
does that take away from the kind of the old school feel and the the you know, look at like a guy like Joe Torre, Bobby Cox, Jim Leland, those guys, uh, you know, great great managers. Are they getting hamstrung by the front office now with the the technology and the statistics and the way they're used? Well, I personally, I, I can't say I've coached at that level and know what they're going through, but my perspective on the thing is those guys that you're referencing, the, the Girardis and the Pinellas, they, they had instincts, right? They could watch a hitter and instantly say, all right, hey, we got to shift here because uh, Glavin's in and he's going to push the ball that way. I mean, they just – they manage based off the speed of the game, the moment, and, and that's why they were some of the best. Now, I do think they have a hard time with the younger um, generation that's in there with the analytics. Um, I do think that you're seeing a lot of new hires that – guys that have never managed. Yep. You know, I, I'll give you Kevin Cash here in Tampa. You yep. know, I mean, I've known Kevin, played against him in high school and college. Kevin had no – managerial experience and he got the job over others and there's a lot of rumors oh he got it because he is into the analytics and because the Rays have to play all those numbers so I do think some managers are missing out on those opportunities and um, I do think some youngers are and I I believe again when you're talking about the DH you're going to see these guys pushing numbers and pushing statistics um, to try to change the game everybody's trying to be the money ball, you know, the Tampa Bay Rays that can do a little with a lot, Yep. you know? Um, so I don't know. It, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, I, I got to tell you, I would love to sit down with a Lou Pinella and a Joe Torre because oh. those guys to me know the game better than anybody. And I would just love to hear them talk in a room about this stuff. Love it. Yeah. I, I actually had a summer to, to spend with Tommy John when he was managing the Bridgeport Bluefish. That's right. And in between regripping golf clubs, I was able to ask him some baseball related questions. <laughs> and just some of the stuff that he came up with is priceless. And to your point, John, the, those old school baseball guys, you know, I, I believe are the true essence of the game and the analytics, while it may help you get ahead, it, it deviates a little bit from the essence of the game. Yeah. yeah. And that's, and you can see that by the shifts, right? And now they're going to do the, every pitcher going to have to face three batters and they're limiting those shifts and they're talking about all this BS because it's becoming so analytical and the guys are switching pitchers every game, every batter or the whole infields on the right side of the field. And these hitters are too stupid to, to just, <laughs> put a bunt down the other side or dribbler, you know what I mean? So that there's, it's funny the people in the front office of major league baseball are now trying to combat some of that stuff. And uh, there's a lot to it. Um, I can tell you, there's a close family friend of ours, George Kissel. He's, he's, he's passed away, but he had the longest tenure in the St. Louis Cardinals organization um, over 60 years with the club. And he coached everybody. And one of his proteges was Ozzie Smith. He was an infield coach um, legend. And he carried a notebook around and made his notes and put his little jots in it and would sit and tell the game and be able to sit on the bench and tell you what's going to happen. And beloved, he wouldn't be able to fit in today's game. Yeah. It, it, it would be too hard for him with all the iPads and the statistics and analytics. So it's, it's crazy, man. A lot, a lot of change, but we'll see. And you, you, you brought up a great point, John. You mentioned like the shift and the hitters are too dumb to 
to lay a bunt down or just try to slap something in the opposite field. But it also begs the question, how much of that is coming from those analytics guys to say a, a single right now or a sacrifice bunt right now is not worth the missed opportunity to show off your launch angle and freaking and, and, and drop one, drop yeah. one in the seats, you know? Um, you know, so it's an interesting dynamic because there's so much behind the scenes that we don't hear about or see about. We just see the product on, on TV. And I, I'm like, you guys, I'm looking at it. I'm like, Jesus, they got, you know, four infielders between first base and second base. And you, you're telling me like, I'm actually, I'll, I'll go to John uh, Stanton with the Yankees, John Carlos Stanton. If that guy could ever figure out a way to just hit a, a freaking 72 hopper <laughs> to the right side, he's right. batting 340. Right. Um, but you know, the, the, you know, from, from the top, it's, it, it seems like, you know, they're looking for less, less batting average and more pop from yeah. these guys. It's, it's tough. They, they gave us a little peek behind the curtain with that movie Moneyball yep. and how Billy Bean was doing things. And that has now, I mean, escalated 10 times. But what I mean by that is he had the, we're not going to try to steal bases. Yep. We're not going to risk that, you know, things like that. We're not going to bunt. We're not going to do we're not giving away outs, and that was the year they went on that run. But going along your points, Dan, that's that's what I'm getting at there. It's uh, it's the game is changing, and these analytical guys, this is what they're paid to do, and it's they're they're making their footprint. But it's hard. Baseball is old school. It's National League pitchers hitting, and uh, this getting back to our topic there. You know, this whole alignment and change and uh, implement DH is going to be. I think there's going to be some resistance for sure from the players. Look, I, I think it's as simple as this. I think if, if baseball wants to get going in 2020, it's Cactus League, Grapefruit League. It's, it's play those teams that you would in spring training who have their home bases for spring training in uh, Florida and Arizona and keep it simple. Just go that route. I don't think you need to make wholesale changes to divisions and leagues and everything like that. Play – spring training for the year and they already have a system in place for that correct you absolutely do you have the infrastructure in place you have everything you need they can be profitable in that model the players owners alike can make money and i think you can figure out a postseason structure that that works in that way i don't think you need to you know just turn everything over uh for the purposes of the next four months um, I think you leave what you have, make the best of it, and look to 2021. I, th I think if they could make that happen, that spring training model, and make those fields that they're playing at. I mean, they're talking no fans anyway. It's yeah. all going to be TV market. You're going right. to eliminate the travel. You're going to have it in two states. It, it makes sense to me. Um, but, again, it's going to be the battle of the owners and battle of them wanting that revenue and figuring that out. You know, again, and if everybody could just put their freaking, uh, you know, pride aside and, and just split it 50-50 for 2020, it's all TV revenue. You don't have a lot of overhead. You don't have stadium concessions and ushers and all of that sort of thing without fans. It's TV revenue. Split it 50-50 for the rest of this year and live to see another day in 2021. I just hope the greed doesn't get them, you know, to your point there. Joe, I, I hope the greed of the players and the owners don't ruin this game because it would put a huge black eye on a, on the Major League Baseball when there's a time that they could 
be that 9-11 hero, you know. Right. Exactly. Pick the country good. up right now because yeah. we're wanting it. I mean, we're watching freaking Korean baseball with cheerleaders and nobody in the stands for Christ's sake. Right. Right. So this is the opportunity for Major League Baseball. I hope they step up. I hope the Players Union and the, and the owners can figure it out. Yeah, agreed 100%. It would be a shame if money came between baseball and, and you know, not. You know, it's, you know, we have people going out of business, record unemployment, World War II style depression here. And if they can't see fit to, you know, sacrifice a couple million dollars for this year, give me a break. Yeah, right. and they'll lose a lot of people, I think. I think will. So you, you, you both have brought up the uh, KBO, <laughs> the Professional Baseball League in South Korea. I uh, Full disclosure, I haven't watched a, a second of it. You're missing I, out. I'm missing <laughs> out, I hear. Word on the street. I hear the cheerleaders have great masks. <laughs> <laughs> so the other, the other word uh, on the street out there is Manny Ramirez talking ah. comeback. Talking comeback, ex Red Sox, Cleveland Indian, Dodger, great, implicated in the uh, the PED situation. I think from day one, right? He was the guy. I'm pretty sure he was the guy that the. There's a great documentary on Netflix about uh, the guy down in Miami, I believe, that Manny was like uh, the first big client for Major League Baseball to to get into it and like full bore into it, not just you know you know, the old steroid cycle, but really buy into the whole routine there. But Manny is talking comeback. Joe, Manny Ramirez in the KBO, are you more inclined or less inclined to watch that? Just as inclined as I am now. He wouldn't, get me, he wouldn't get me up any earlier. Yeah, I echo that. I would get <laughs> to watch that guy hit. Uh, but, uh, yeah, not at all. I mean, I feel like he's <laughs> – He's just needing a paycheck um, and is just wanting a, a headline here. He's done this for the last few years. I, I yeah. actually looked it up. Uh, it's it's kind of humorous to me. But. It is. You want to talk about uh, you want to talk about a guy that could hit though. Yeah. Oh my good. And who knows what the PED thing was and everything, but that guy was a terror. Yeah. I'll tell you the hardest thing for me for professional baseball players in like is not competing and. I mean, there's guys that play in men's leagues in their little cities until they're 56. I mean, back here in Clearwater, we got a lot of ex-pros playing in a 40-and-up men's league just because they want to compete. Yeah. But, man, he's taking it to the next, next level. He needs that paycheck, too, you know. He's, he's going to go over to Taiwan, and he's going to get in the, in the trenches there. To, to get paid. Well, in the trenches, this is that. This is a segment in the last uh, last sec, uh, question of the the in the trenches segment here. Manny is famous for a, a tremendous athletic play he made in the outfield, uh, cutting off, <laughs> cutting off the center fielder from about fifteen feet away from him. Have you guys started implementing and teaching the left field cut off the center fielder? to the Lady Alliance 10-year-old uh, <laughs> softball team. Is that, in the, is that in the curriculum here, Coach? What do we got? <laughs> well, I can tell you, it's all about the personnel in the field. If there's a certain player in center, then we're going to teach Manny Brun. Otherwise, no, not at all. Uh, the quadruple I had, cutoff. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't heard that name 
Manny Ramirez since you brought it up, to be honest with you. But uh, <laughs> there funny. are definitely times that we'll just put it this way, that we, we revert back to uh, Kelly Lee. Kelly, get the ball, make the catch, make the throw. <laughs> From the bad news bears yeah so yeah. i mean that is one thing i can tell you we do it still listen the ball goes up you catch it don't <laughs> let her get it so john does that make you coach buttermaker yeah for sure <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness off to a great start i will say this about manny ramirez i despise you know uh him playing against the yankees because he just ripped <laughs> them apart but uh you want to talk about a guy that the persona of not giving a shit about anything, that guy could get the Mike Tyson uppercut and just walk it off like it was nothing and move on to the next thing and do, you know, something crazy, uh, whether it was at the plate, you know, hitting a bomb to, you know, opposite field or cutting off the center field or <laughs> the essence of not letting the uncontrollable things get in your way. Manny Ramirez did that to a T right there for his career. So, he was put hey. on this planet to hit and not much else. Don't think, just hit. Don't think, just hit, baby. Well, we can't go into a break with a better quote than that. So don't hit, just think. That was in the trenches. We're going to take a short break, and we'll get back and interview the man, the myth, the legend, Coach John V. Thanks for tuning in on the WAS Sports Leadership Podcast. We'll be back shortly. Welcome back to the WAS Sports Leadership Podcast. Thanks for checking us out this week. I'm going to turn it right over to Joe here, who's going to introduce our guest of the week. Joe, take it away, my friend. Yeah, thank you, Dan. Coach John Vigu, again, thanks for joining us. Good first segment in the trenches. Want to get into a, a little bit about you, though. You, you bring some really interesting perspective and experience from your playing days professionally you know, and in college as well, and then also with your coaching experience. But before we get, get there, I got to start with how much you benching these days? <laughs> benching? Everybody benching. <laughs> what could you bench these days? I couldn't tell you. I haven't benched in 100 years, man. All right, we'll go 225. How about that? <laughs> man, in my, in my heyday... I, I would be lucky to do that. <laughs> hey, I was a pitcher, for Christ's sake. We weren't allowed to pitch. That's right. It's all about the flexibility, right? Great. Great. So that, that's a good segue. Talk to us a little bit about how you got started here locally. You and I are in Florida here, and, and Dan is up in Connecticut. But you're a local boy. Uh, your father was a coach. Tell us a little bit about how you got started, you know, at the high school level and, and playing with your dad and, and how you got to USF. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so I was born in a baseball family. Um, my dad was a, you kind of mentioned, was a legend coach around here. We had, uh, he, I have an older brother that he coached. They won a state title. So I was the bad boy, grew up in the game, got to, to see what, these guys were all about what it took to be a champion. And I was fortunate uh, when I got to high school, our team at Seminole High School was the number one team in the country. Uh, we had just a team full of Division One professional players. It was pretty cool. 
and from that, uh, all these scouts getting to see that team, I got an opportunity to go further my career at USF here in Tampa, Florida, uh, play for the legend coach, Eddie Cartieri. Eddie, it was there over 20 years and uh, ironically was from St. Pete Catholic um, High School and played for my father and uh, ended up recruiting and scholarshipping 12 kids from my father's teams over the years and became a, a mainstay in our conferences and here in uh, uh, Tampa, Florida. But I, uh, I actually signed to go to USF, Joe. I don't know if I told you this, as a second baseman. Mm-hmm. Signed early as a second baseman with all the desires to be the next Jose Altuve, right? <laughs> you know? Um, actually, I, I'm older than his little ass. So, uh, but that was the goal, right? To be a second baseman hit play and I showed up on campus off the heels of a very good summer pitching and they said hey we're gonna give you a shot to do both and I was okay and uh luckily I got um I had a pitching coach that believed in my stuff and let me just go out there and I ended up throwing opening day as a freshman down against FIU and never saw the field again (laughs) uh ended up being a four-year starter for uh, the Bulls and uh, just had a, a great high uh, college career there and um, got the opportunity to springboard into the Rays. Um, went to lovely Princeton, West Virginia and played a rookie ball and then moved into Charleston, uh, uh, South Carolina, played there. And then from there, my, my careers and things were changing. Uh, while I was with the Rays, I was also part-time as a pitching coach for a local high school here, Dunedin High School, which was a powerhouse at the time. Um, and we went to a state Final Four, and I was kind of doing double duty in spring training. Um, and uh, after my years with Charleston, I, I got into I got a head coaching job. So I got my first head coaching job at 25 here at Palm Harbor High School. And um, I felt like that was the call. I was going to just coach high school, college baseball. This is what I was going to do. After my first year, uh, kind of turning around the program, I got an opportunity to go coach college wood bat league and went up to Middleburg uh, and, and coached a select college wood bat team in the Valley League. It was a first-time program. You talk about some crazy – I could tell you stories about that town and that team for days, but uh, that was my first experience of college players. So I'd done three years of high school at this time, and I, I was like, I got to get into college. And uh, I actually took an opportunity and left Palm Harbor High School as the head coach and went down to Florida Gulf Coast University. They were an uh, up-and-coming program that just went into Division II status, and I took the pitching coach job there. And it was in Fort Myers, Florida. Now they're a Division One. They're actually a well-known uh, school here in Florida. And I uh, had a great year. I really enjoyed working with the college caliber player, the athlete. And by the way, I didn't have to deal with parents. So it was great. <laughs> I just recruited and I coached. Uh, but there was no money. There was no money there. And I got the itch being with college guys. that I was showing how to do things. And went back and played again and went and played uh, two years of independent ball. Um, and then from that got into college coaching again at St. Pete college, a junior college. Um, 
was four years there. And then a new athletic director took over at my at St. Pete Catholic, uh, which I referred to before, where my college coach was at. And he kind of recruited me back there. That's where my dad coached for years. And I took over that program that had been run down and not won in a long time. And uh, we turned things around and did four years there. Went to uh, finish it with a state final four run. And uh, then had my second daughter. So at that point, uh, life perspective, things changed and kind of stepped away from coaching for, for a couple of years until they could do t-ball. And then it was game on again. We were getting <laughs> back at it. And now I, I coach girls softball, which yeah. if had you asked me that 10 years ago, there's not a chance I would ever say I'd be coaching girls softball. But uh, I love it now. And I love, will love what I'm doing. Well, and, and I'll first say that the girls on, on our squad and in our club are better for playing under you and, and, you know, just having the lessons that you teach them both on and off the field. So it, it, it is absolutely um, an honor to be in that club with you and to watch you do your thing. You know, I, th this is really interesting, Dan. And, and, and th I think this, there's a leadership lesson just in hearing uh, John talk about his experience, it's absolutely fascinating to me. I, I am a lover of the game of baseball. I played it my entire life until um, I got to college. Um, and, you know, his experience, I could listen to over and over and over unendingly because it is, it is such a, a fascinating topic for me and something that I'm so just genuinely interested in. And I think you know, I wouldn't have gotten to know John had if it wasn't for my daughter and, and her desire to try to get into the game of softball. Um, and luckily enough, we were able to uh, make it into the club. But I'll say this, that anybody who has this this joy, this this passion about any subject, whether it's sports or, or not related to sports, finding people who have lived that experience and just picking their brain can be so fascinating and so uplifting just to hear about some, somebody's own journey and their own uh, bit of experience. And so, John, I'm going to take you back to when you were playing for your dad. I've had the joy of watching you te teach and coach your daughters for a couple years now, and you have a very distinct style, and I respect that style. It's, it's as intense as any – high school or, or summer league team that I ever played for, you know, as a 17, 18 year old kid playing up in the Northeast, it was American Legion. And we played, you know, 65 ball games in a summer. Um, and that was pretty intense. And, you know, I, I see the intensity in you uh, coaching these 10 year old girls and, and I just, I love it. And I get caught up in it myself, but Tell me about your experience with your dad as a player. Do you get that intensity from your dad? How is your dad as a, a parent and coach to you? Tell me a little bit about that dynamic. Well, it's, it's a great, <laughs> great question there. So my dad, uh, you talk about intensity, that's what he was. Um, and he's from that old school, like we referred to earlier, the Girardis, the Pinellas, the George Kissels. That was my father. And he wasn't a baseball guy. He made himself a baseball guy by surrounding himself with the best and going and sitting and talking. But he was intense. You can't, you can't teach how intense he was. 
and he definitely instilled that in me. I played that way, and I've coached that way since day one. Um, but he was very, very intense and passionate about the game. Like, I'm going to teach you. You need to respect the game, and you need to go out and execute like you would um, – like you're expected, put it that way. And he didn't never get on people for errors or making mistakes. It was more the mental side of things. If you weren't prepared for the game or you weren't prepared for your opportunities, that's when he showed his intensity. And I'm going to give you a quick story that, that literally has stayed with me and it stayed with the person that the story is about for the rest, I mean, for his life. And if you were to call him today, he would tell you it was a changing point in his life about being prepared. One of my closest friends on this elite travel ball team, this is before actually travel ball, it was the St. Pete Powell team. He, we were blowing a team out by 13 runs. We had one of the best, best offensive teams around at that age group. Every one of those guys went on to play Division One or professional baseball. And he says to Jason – Go get, go get warmed up. You're going to go in. And Jason didn't have his cleats on. And <laughs> Jason went running down the bullpen. And two batters later, coach went out to make the switch. And Jason had thrown maybe two pitches down the bullpen. Oh, my gosh. And Jason had to come running in. And, again, we're up a lot of runs. And the game is – but that's, that's, that wasn't what was important to my father. And – Jason threw ball one, and then Jason threw ball two, and then Jason threw ball three, and he stood out of the dugout and said, if you throw one more ball, I'm yanking you out of this game. And at this point, I was actually at second base. I came over and talked to him, and he was shitting his pants. He was so worried about letting his team down, whatever. And we settled him down. The catcher came out. We settled him down. And he threw a strike and got through it. And he came off. And the, the, the coach that my father was kind of grabbed him and said, hey, I'm not mad that you threw a ball. I'm mad you weren't prepared. You don't think I saw you were in your sneakers and that you only threw two pitches down the bullpen on a game you knew you were going to pitch? And uh, Jason will tell you today, he takes that through his life. And he's a successful businessman. And um, I try to take that value that my father instilled when I, that was when I was 16. I, I will never forget it, that always be prepared for your opportunities, always. So I try to teach that way. Yeah, I am intense. Um, I'm nothing like my father was. I could tell you some serious <laughs> stories that make you, make you laugh. but uh, Or cringe. I, or cringe. Yeah, he'd probably be in jail. Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, that's, that's where I get it. I get it, uh, some, a lot of my intensity. But I got to tell you, you know, Joe, um, if I could. So I, when I first got into the high school, in college, I coached my hair on fire. I was so freaking intense. It was unbelievable and passionate and just in your face teaching the game. And I didn't like when kids weren't paying attention or the want. They didn't want to be better. That drove me nuts. And then it was my second year at St. Pete Catholic. So this was probably eight years into my career. I, I brought on a veteran coach who was way older than me. Actually coached my father back in the 80s. Wow. Um, I brought him on as a hitting guy. It was his tail end of his career. And he changed me. He really changed my style. He got me to 
to to back off a little bit and and be a little bit more conscious of my approach and i feel like if it wasn't for him there's no chance in hell i would be coaching girls softball these days but uh, yeah you got to evolve i think in your coaching life so you, you talked about the the hair on fire days and you know <laughs> Coach, Coach John Vigue was full of piss and vinegar, right? Yeah. Tell us the story about the dentist appointment. I, I've, heard, I've heard bits of this story. I, I, think we, I think we need to hear the story about this was Coach John with his hair on fire. So that's a great story. Thank you. So I'm 25 years old. I'm the head baseball coach at Palm Harbor. And you got to understand, I'm a person of rules and person of guy. I, I would never – ever start anything without people knowing where I stand and we had a, one particular practice and now this is a varsity and JV team we all practice together um, so I had probably 35 kids out there and this one poor JV kids mom just <laughs> set my hair on fire uh, so we're in, in the middle of batting practice with the varsity kids so the JV kids are shagging we're a station group. We still do that to this day, don't we, Joe? So we we're do. stations, we're moving, and I got my leadoff hitting 400 in the county. He's hitting over 400, left-handed hitter in the cage, and I'm throwing. And out of nowhere, a mother makes it through my fence, which, by the way, our dugouts there are set way back. So if there's any Florida Palm Harbor people, they, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's set off the field a little bit. She made it through the gate, and it caught the corner of my eye as she walked across the first base foul line, and I threw the ball down in the dirt instead of a strike because my left-handed hitter, he didn't see her, and I kind of charged her and gave her a little uh, – <laughs> what the F are you doing with big eyes? And she didn't know what to say, but little Johnny had to get to a dentist appointment and she couldn't believe that he wasn't ready to go. And I did not uh, think little Johnny's dentist appointment really mattered at the point. And uh, poor kid, he got thrown out of practice. Mom got yelled at. They got thrown off the field. Um yeah, that was a interesting. A lot of exchanges were made, put it that way. But uh, that was the only incident in my first year of head baseball coaching that I had dealt with. Kind of, wow. I, think the, I think the story got out. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm sure mom had a little surprise in her panties when she got home later that night. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think the comment was, have I ever come in your office and sat down in your chair and told you I need something? So, oh, out of my field. Uh, yeah well I, you know the, the the dynamic with parents is can be difficult and you know in the two years that we've been together and I've made this comment to you before that I feel that your communication and the your ability to be forthright to set expectations to communicate everything that you expect as a coach not only with the kids but with the parents has been the best job of communication I've ever seen, whether it be, you know, at the high school level or, or anything other than that. And so, you know, we always talk about communication is the language of leadership. Talk a little bit about your philosophy, 
now we're at the youth level in, in, you know, starting a, a new season with, with a group of parents, what, it, what do you think about, you know, in your communication with these parents and with these kids that you absolutely need to establish prior to rolling out the balls? You know, you do it so well. How do you go about it? Wow. I appreciate, I appreciate you saying that, Joe, and thank you. And for all the coaches out there, one bit of advice I could give you is, you know, it doesn't matter if you're coaching five-year-olds or college uh, you, you got to set expectations. You got to set the tone. And, and I am a firm believer that most people want to be told what to do um, and want to know what you're going to be doing. And when you, when you lay it out for them, they, they are less aggressive towards you. They don't question you as much. It's the coaches that are worried about saying something that might offend one out of 10 people in this room that uh, they, they end up getting walked over. So um, I did it back when I was 25 as the head coach of Palm Harbor, and I do it today with our team. We'll have a parent meeting. I set expectations. Hey, here's the deal. This is what our expectations are. When we come out here for free to work, that's what we're doing. This is our work. Do not interrupt, right? And then I try to give some guidelines of, of what we expect them to do for our team, what we're expecting of our players, and, and then I basically tell them what they should expect from us. And it's an accountability thing, in my opinion. It keeps us all accountable and on par with the objective, right? Teach the kids, get them better. Uh, it doesn't matter what level you coach. Um, you know, Joe, you've, you've said the Matheny Manifesto a few times, and I've, what an awesome little bit that is. Oh, yeah, but really that's, is. that's a staple, in my opinion, you know. It, if if parents want to be involved, they should, they should figure out how to coach. Otherwise, they got to trust the coaches. And I feel it's our job to set expectations early. You know, you can't wait for something to happen. You got you to gotta meet that head uh, in the beginning. And I, that's one thing I try to do. And that was something instilled from my father that he, he always did when we were kids, um, you know, basically laying out the guidelines so that no, nobody is um, – caught off guard like oh you never said that Sarah was only going to play five innings I don't understand well go back and figure it out because I definitely would have told you you know (laughs) so I I, did and like I said in the beginning that I feel very strongly that parents want to be told and want to know going in and sometimes I get uh probably too elaborate and I get that but I, I I try to cover every scenario Joe and uh, and I feel like it's part of what's made me successful. Yeah, no, absolutely. You, you do a great job with the communication side. And, and you know, it, it's your philosophy is very similar to the, the philosophy I had learned in my military experience, where it's much easier to go in hard nosed as a hard ass and then pull back the reins a little bit and, and loosen the reins and, and say, okay, you know, we, now that we have this common understanding, we can, we can be a little bit more gentle. But if, if you go in loose and let the parents run rampant over you, then you lose control and you lose all semblance of organization. And so, you know, whether the parents read the emails or are paying attention to the text messages or are attending the parent meetings, that's on them. But at the end of the day, your effort in communicating and making sure everybody's on the same page with our goals, our objectives for the season and what is expected of the kids has always been on point. And, you know, I've always respected that a lot about you because of 
your ability to organize your thoughts, to be kind of stern yet compassionate. Um, and so it, it's really interesting, John, the, you know, the, the 25 year old coach Vigu and now coach Vigu with the, the softball teams, what's the same? I mean, there, there's obviously a lot different. The intensity is, is in a different way. Um, you know, the, the, the fire, fireness is, is, is a bit different. What's the same? I'll tell you what, the structure, the structure is the same. Uh, I might be dealing with 10 year old girls and not 15 to 18 year old boys or college men. Um, but the structure of how I go about it from, from a practice schedule and a plan and objective come day one is a hundred percent the same. And my love for the game is a hundred percent the same. It doesn't matter if they're girls playing with a big yellow ball or, or men throwing 90 plus, I still come with the same passion for the game and the love of it. Um, and I think that is another thing that makes us successful. I don't show up at the park and say, hey, what are we gonna do today? What do you think we're gonna cover? We, we all, I always have a plan and I try at the beginning of the year to lay out all the things I need to make sure we cover so that we are prepared, whether the kids get it or not, but it makes me feel better, I'm prepared before that first game. Um, so I think that's the one thing I've done since I was 25 to now. I've always been a planner. Uh, I've always tried to lay out uh, my thoughts and make sure we cover certain aspects of the game. Yeah. yeah. In two plus years of, of being on the staff and working with you and, and the players, I have never once shown up to a practice, Dan, not knowing what stations I was running and what I was responsible for. Yeah, and, and you, John just said it perfectly the passion for what you're doing and I, whether it's youth softball or or the the highest level or in the corporate world if that's not there you can only fake that for so long and people read through bullshit right and the preparation right uh, are are two huge keys regardless of what you're doing those are leadership concepts and they apply to softball they apply to to being a student they apply to being a good kid at home whatever it might be um, what do you hope you're coaching some young girls right now and it's a competitive team. I, you know, I hear from Joe that, you know, you put the best product on the field that you can with the athletes that you're working with, but they're young, right? That some of them might go on and play. Some of them might, that might be the end of their softball career. What are some of your goals beyond, you know, that season for, Hey, at the end of the season, I hope the girls have developed this way i hope they can feel more confident in this what do you what are some of those goals that are a little less softball specific uh well it's funny you 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 say that because it's given me a lot of thought over the years because the goals of my nine and ten year old team is way different than the goals i would set for my high school team or my college team right um to me one of the things that i've had to learn through this process and you can ask joe we've adapted by bringing in some different coaches some female coaches some younger coaches um but we've tried we want to make sure that they still lo they love the game at the end of the year yeah right and we do that by structure by always trying to teach something them having fun and not burning them out i can tell you one thing that we do better than any organization is we're, we're teaching the game the right way but we also respect the fact that they're nine and ten yeah um and i say that with all respect to my counterparts out there doing this but for a nine and 10 year old to play a 20 tournament schedule 
over the course of three months, it's outlandish to me. It blows my freaking mind. And that's why a lot of people say, oh, you know, five of you may make it to high school. It's because they get burnt out now. Yeah. Our goal is, one of my goals is all these girls still love the game enough that they play in high school. You know, and it makes what their families are investing in, it makes my time that I'm investing way worth it if they keep playing when they're in high school and or college. You know, yeah. that's one of my goals that I, I try to set forth. And that, again, goes back to my structure. I try to keep it fun. And, and Joe will echo this. In the last two years, we've had to pivot because me and Joe are very intense guys. We had to bring in a female coach to try to show a little bit more Lucy perspective. And it's very hard for me and Joe between the lines. I'm not a lot. But again, it goes back to we both understood the goal is not necessarily win that trophy today, but to make sure these girls still love the game and still keep competing and still want it when it matters, you know? Yeah, no, it, it, absolutely. That's well said. You know, you, you, John, you've done an admirable job here on the hot seat. <laughs> we we are i have i have one fun little activity here to finish up here and it's called the lightning round oh baby so the lightning round I, john i'm gonna throw some phrases or some questions to you and as quick as you can whatever comes to mind first i need you to answer or finish the phrase so the, the <laughs> lightning round begins now coach big you Finish this sentence. Winning means. Ooh. <laughs> so a lot of me would like to say everything, but at a nine to 10 year old, I would say winning means. <laughs> everything. <laughs> winners win, baby. Winners win. I don't know what else That's to say, right. brother. I mean, That's winners right. win. No problem. It's just defining what winning is. But I can't we... teach losing. Correct. All right, next one. What motivates you more, thrill of victory or agony of defeat? Ooh, you know what? That's a great question. But I, I got to say thrill of victory. Great. Next one. Most important skill a ball player can have in your eyes? Ooh. Um... Work ethic. Nice. Next one. A coaching skill that you don't do well that you wish you did better. <laughs> oh, you dick. Um, <laughs> compassion. Okay. I wish I had a little bit more compassion. That's what I'm for. <laughs> next one characterize your leadership style in one word Ooh. wow intense got it last one here last one finishing with a bang your biggest pet peeve as a coach i can't i can't stand when people tell me i can't i can't yeah. It's, it's the opening of being a loser when you keep saying I can't do something. So as there I, you have I, it, Coach John Vigue. Great job. Great well job. Well done. Coach. Well done. You did well, John. You did well. Thank you. Thank you, fellas. That was fun. Hey, uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back. We have uh, – I'm going to add an additional question to that based <laughs> off of a story I heard a couple nights ago. 
<laughs> and then we're going to get into a video and, and, and enter the home stretch nice. of episode three of the When Athletes Shit in the Woods podcast. We'll catch you back in a minute. All right, we are back. Coach John Vigu is absolutely crushing it right now. No, uh, no lazy blooping uh, singles here. He's just absolutely dominating the batting cage right now. Appreciate you joining Joe and I today. It's been great so far. Um, before we get to our audio highlight of the week, as a young 25-year-old coach, you talk a little bit about parent involvement and you start hearing the whispers about, you know, what kids should be playing where, batting where. Give our listeners a little insight into how the young and hair on fire, <laughs> the intensity was flowing, how the young coach John handled that as a 25-year-old uh, after getting suggestions about lineups. <laughs> well, thanks for that segue. <laughs> uh, I got to tell you, so at 25, my father was a big influencer in my life and coaching wise. And he said, you make sure you set the tone and people understand that you mean business. And I said, all right. So we're first meeting, first parent meeting. Like I told you earlier, I had a varsity and JV team. So I had all these parents in front of me and I'm 25. So they're old, all older than me, obviously. And we're in this gymnasium. So there's 30 plus kids on the team times two. So there's 60 plus parents in there. And we're going through expectations and rules. And I'm trying to tell them, like, here's, here's what we're planning to do. You know, and I got two assistant coaches with me. So there's just three of us up there and talking to these people. And I had finished it up with just this one liner, basically, of saying, hey, you know, I'm going to finish this up with, I understand that you guys – had a great team last year and all a bunch of all-stars and you guys, all your kids should be starting. And I probably don't know who's the best. So I want you to do me a favor before we start the spring season. And I want you to go home and I want you to write what you feel is the best lineup that we should be putting out there opening day. And you should see the faces. They got kind of like giddy and excited. Oh, little Johnny, yes. And I said, but you gotta do me a favor. I said, you need to write it on toilet paper. And everybody kind of had a puzzled look, didn't know exactly what to say. And I said, well, and the reason I want it on toilet paper is because I'm going to take a big shit before the first game, and I need someone to wipe my ass with because that's what I think of your lineup. <laughs> I make the lineup. I make the final decision. If you ever question it, come out to practice, and it will tell you why I write the lineup. And uh, that, that shook the room, put it that way. <laughs> But the, the whole reason was not to be a jerk, of which I definitely came off. But it was, listen, perspective is what it is. And at that time, travel ball was huge. And all every kid was paying to play on a travel ball team. So they felt like they were all-stars. And the reality was that I will pick that lineup and I will play the best. And the rest of you can shut up. <laughs> <laughs> that is so, classic. That's beautiful. And uh... – I know toilet paper is uh, is tough to get right now based yeah. on the situation that we're in, but parents of high school athletes, next time uh, you want to make a lineup or roster recommendation to your kid's coach, 
remember that. You know, maybe yeah. I should write it down on toilet paper because the coach is probably going to know a little bit better than me. Hey, we're going to jump into a quick little audio right here. This is great. I love this guy. <laughs> John, thank you for bringing this guy into my life. <laughs> Let's see where they got me today. Second base? Who's playing shortstop? Coach is key. Welcome to Daddy Ball. I played on a team with the coaches tonight. Never do that again. Coach is key playing shortstop? Is this a yo? I'm sitting at second base watching the shortstop, the coach is key. Make about 15 airs in a game. Oh, come on, man. Make a play one time. When there's about 15 other players are better than he. The best after every play, Mr. Coach over there in the dugout. It's all right, who you Get the next one. What you're talking about, he's gonna get the next one. He's at about 40 next one. He haven't made one of them. Get it next time. Yeah, right. Then Mr. Coach makes some excuse about why Junior playing over there shortstop and not you. Oh, uh, you know, Domingo, you're our best second baseman. What are we gonna do if you're not over there? I don't care. Put a seven-year-old over there. You can put a chair over at second base. It's gonna be better than your son. Don't get me started on the hitting part. Just because your son is fast, no mean he should be a leadoff hitter. Speed no matter if you can't hit the ball. Your son batting a buck 65. He's batting average almost as much as his feeling percentage. But he's playing every day at shortstop and batting first. I don't even know what's worse. The fact that you're playing your son at shortstop every day or the fact that he's batting 165 and you're still batting him at leadoff. I can't even get an RBI because your son never on base. Come on, man. Open up your eye one time. I'm done. Welcome to daddy ball. Oh, there's number seven on the day. Hey, why don't you just sell your glove? You can sell it for brand new because it's never made a play. Man, what's the deal with coaches keep playing shortstop batting leadoff? Has he even touched a ball in three weeks? Nah, dude, he sucks. I know, look at him. He's a first baseman for shortstop. That's your first sign that he's semi-pro. That is awesome. I haven't laughed that hard. I, you know, the, the COVID uh, situation has been tough. Not going to interact with people. And those three videos you sent over today, John, were uh, the sunshine of my day. So I really appreciate it. <laughs> so yeah. on a serious note, you know, great, great video. Tons of fun. You should, John, share with everybody that it's uh, Domingo. Domingo Ayala. Yeah, he's got a ton of YouTube videos and they're classic. They are classic. I would highly recommend anybody that loves the game. He is very humorous and does very good little short bits. Nothing's longer than five minutes. It's it's pretty. pretty Nothing's far fetched. It's spot on every time, which is <laughs> very part of the fun. Well, hey, before we go over to our last segment, you guys have both played competitive sports. Joe at the high school and the college level, football, baseball, John baseball up into the the professional level uh, and now you find yourself being the 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 coach of an athlete on your team you know uh your daughters both play on the lady alliance softball club there give um just give our listeners a little insight into that transition from you you know coaching both at the you know high school level joe i know you did that john you've done that and, and beyond that and making that transition to not only taking you're coaching the younger kids, you're coaching the girls instead of the boys, but you're coaching your own children. Give our listeners a little insight into how tough that transition was and, um, you know, how, how you think you do at that 
uh, aspect of, uh, of coaching right now. Joe, we'll start with you. It's been a challenge for me, for sure. You know, um, pretty much since I got out of the military, I, I've been working as a corporate trainer, leadership specialist, and, and facilitator with you, Dan, right? Yep. So I am so used to motivating adults and, and finding little things in adults to, to motivate and inspire and drive them to, to be better. Um, and so it, it's hard to be with a group of first eight-year-olds and then nine-year-olds and now 10-year-olds. And, and I still see some of the same behaviors in these young kids that we see in the corporate groups that we work with so often. And I want to tell them the messages that I have on the tip of my tongue, you know, but they're 10 and, it, you know, more than not, it goes over their head or through their legs or something to that effect. And, and it's difficult for me. So, so I've left the, the, um, the team motivation and inspiration to coach John. And I, I reach out on the individual level now and, and try to create relationships on, on the individual level, just because motivating the kids is so far different than motivating a group of adults in any of our empower programs. And that's second nature to me. Yeah. Um, it was second nature to me to, to coach high school baseball. It was second nature to me to lead a platoon of soldiers, nine and 10 year olds is so different. And it's such a, a far cry from where I've spent majority of my leadership time. So John and I do a good job, I feel, of, of mixing up, you know, uh, the interactions. You know, with, with my daughter in particular, she responds better to positive encouragement. Um, she, as soon as she makes a mistake, is like, you know, breakneck over to wherever I'm standing. And so I have to bite my tongue, my lip, the side of my mouth and curl my toes as hard as I can to not, you know, slam a glove, hit a pole, bang on the dugout fence, whatever it might be at, at a mistake or a, you know, a, a improper play. And so I do everything I can to suppress that feeling in me because I know it'll only make a negative effect, not only on her, but all the girls are that way. Yeah. And it, it's so different from boys. Um, where you have to be in their face, you have to be firm and stern, you have to challenge them. Whereas girls, it's more about the positive, it's more about the silver lining and, and being uplifting and looking past the, the, the errors. Um, and so all of that being said, it's, it's, it's fun. It is, it's, it's a great joy. You know, it, it, at the very least, John and I have our little shoulder towels that we can bite on and swear into so that um you know we don't make a public mockery of the lady alliance gary um, tarkanian style do you, exactly. shark. <laughs> um, you know and and you know it, there was maybe one or two cases where i had to hold john back in a dugout but you know that's for another podcast <laughs> So, yeah. so that's my experience. You know, really, it's all about my own shortcomings. It's nothing about the kids. The kids are great. It's all about what I what my strengths and, and challenges are and just trying to do the best that I can. But some days are better than others, for sure. What about you, John? Thank well, you, I, gotta tell you I, I love it. I wouldn't I would not be coaching girls tenure softball if I didn't love coaching my kids. But with that, I grew up playing for my father a couple of I actually didn't play for my father until I was 15. He, I have an older brother that he coached since he 
was eight years old all the way through high school and they were state champs. And I didn't play for my father until I was 15. But at that point, I understood that it is, it's difficult for both the parent and the child. And because I felt as a 15 year old playing in an elite team that all the eyes were on me. Oh, you only made the team because your dad's coach. And I knew from my father, the perspective of, oh, you know, your, co your son made the team just because you're the coach, right? Well, that's still today. And that goes back to our coaching styles. You know, you got to set expectations to these parents and let them know that it's not daddy ball, yeah. you know? Um, we're here to do a job and we take it serious. Um, but I don't envy my daughter. I don't envy the fact that she's on this team where her father has played at some higher levels and coached at higher levels that I'm coaching this team. I don't envy the fact that I'm sure there's pressure on her, and I know I instill a lot of pressure. Um, unfortunately, I wish I was better at that. Uh, I can tell you what I learned from my father is I'm overly hard on my kids, especially in front of a team setting, because I want to make sure everybody knows my kids are getting treated just like everybody else. Yeah. You know, and that's yeah. that's something that means a lot to me. I don't I. And I probably do my kids an injustice for the fact that I go over the top sometimes to make sure the parents and those that are there understand that my kids are treated just like everybody else. And they are. So I got to, to, to rewind this and put it in a nutshell. I love coaching my kids or I wouldn't do it. I've told many people, as soon as my oldest daughter says she doesn't want to play for me, I'll step away. No questions asked. But I'm hoping to make it as fun as possible for her and teach her the game as much as possible that she knows that I'm the best uh, coach in front of her right now. And I'm hoping that I get to coach her for a long time. Same with my, my younger daughter is a spitfire. So me <laughs> and her are a lot alike, right? So we butt heads a lot. And I coached her in soccer, basketball, and softball. And we're a lot alike. And I have a totally different approach with her than I do my oldest daughter. And, um, and that's part of being kind of like that video, right? Domingo, you know, it's, it's that coach's kid, right? Oh, coach's kid's hitting leadoff. Well, when your coach's kid is good, you know, the best play, the best spots, the best hit in the best lineups. But uh, I feel like with Joe, we have a great approach to this. We spell things out. And, and they, our girls, if they are um, the best at a certain position or the best to help our team, they're in that position and their teammates because of our approach support them. Yep. And I hope I never hear a parent say, Oh, my daughter's only playing third base because she's my daughter. Um, I hope that she proves that she earned it. Um, and we give our kids a lot of shit, unfortunately, you know, <laughs> and that's part of being a coach's kid, right? Yeah, because of the Domingo Ayala's out there. Right. So <laughs> me and Joe, we know that. And we know this, prestige so one thing then that we're up against that these other travel ball teams they post online and they oh you don't want to play for a, a kid's dad you want to play for yeah. don smith over here because we pay him we pay him to coach well yeah you pay a grown man to coach 10 year olds <laughs> softball and he doesn't have a daughter on the team there's a problem there right <laughs> yeah so we 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 combat that daddy ball a lot and we give it the big number one. Hey, this is why we're doing it. It has nothing to do with, I got to make sure my kid starts. 
It's because we want to spend time with our kids. We want our kids to learn the game the right way. Yeah. And we want to surround ourselves with families that trust that we're doing this for all the right reasons and not to make money like some of these other jabronis. Yeah, Nobody's no, I, more critical of our kids than us. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we want the team to win and, and there's no spot or position on the field um, that is guaranteed for anybody. And, for sure. and all of our parents who trust in what we're doing with this club uh, understand that. So one thing I'll just last thing on that, Dan, is I, I, all the coaches out there that are coaching their kids, um, boys, girls, I would encourage you, you know, set the tone and, and, you know, don't be a jerk to your kids, but you definitely want to push your kids and make sure that everybody knows that everybody's created equal. And yeah. that's one thing I've done everywhere I've been, whether you're my kid or you're my best player or you're my worst player, everybody gets treated equally. So when I say this is the rule or this is what's going to happen and you don't, and you fall short of it, you're held accountable. Yeah. And I think as a parent, and coach, that's very important amongst your peers, uh, your other coaches that may not have a kid on the team or may do, or in the parents. So I would highly encourage you, be consistent, set expectations, hold everybody to the same standard. And as hard as it is, because your heart will bleed for your kid, you know, be as stern with them as you have to be. And when you go home, you culture them, you give them the love, you, you make them understand why. And I could pull my daughter out right now and she would tell you why I'm, I'm super hard on her at times and she gets it. Now yeah. my younger one, it's still a work in progress. But <laughs> <laughs> Rome wasn't built in a day. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, seriously, John, awesome, awesome stuff uh, for, for people that are into coaching or for parents that have athletes on teams and you're wondering what your involvement should look like, sound like, feel like, and you, you, you laid out a lot there and it's uh, it's been it's been great to hear from you outside of beer league softball where yeah, I played with Joe beer league softball. He, bat, he, bat, he batted about a buck 85. It was, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. was coming from the wood bat league. That's right. But no, some, just some great insight into, you know, what it's like in coaching and, and the different levels and coaching your own, you know, your own, your own children. So some valuable information, John, you crushed it. Thank you, Thank you so much. We're going to get into the final bit of our third episode here, and I'm going to turn it over, kick it over to Joe Dering. So we're going to dive into our leader or loser episode. This is leader or loser last dance style. So <laughs> last dance has made quite a splash into the, the TV market. Um, ESPN's documentary, 10-part uh, documentary on Jordan. Uh, it's averaging almost 6 million viewers per episode. I mean, that's yeah. a pretty big deal. Um, by far the largest documentary and competes with shows like CSI and all that type of stuff. So um, we're going to go around the horn and if I'm going to give you a, a, a scenario or, or a player's reaction or behavior on the show from what I've seen. And if you agree or support the player in their behavior, you're going to say, you're going to call them a leader. If you think they're completely wrong or off base, you're going to call them a loser. And so we're going to kick it off now. Jerry Reinsdorf's decision to not give Scottie Pippen a new contract after he established himself, himself as an all-NBA player. Leader or loser, Dan? Loser, and it's part of it's because of the way he went about doing it. Or not doing it. John? I agree, loser. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. I mean, you, you could um, 
you know, I think his point was he didn't want to set a precedent for renegotiating contracts, but in any player, if they ever establish themselves as an all NBA player, they're worth renegotiating. Yeah. It's only going to get bad for you if you don't. Yep. I played on the dream team for sure. Yeah, and he was a stud. <laughs> Great. Next question. Scotty Pippen's decision to protest on the last day of the 94 Eastern conference semis versus the Knicks. He sat out that last play, leader or loser, Dan? Loser. And Kukoc freaking buried, buried the jumper and just put the dagger in his loser heart in that situation. I love Scotty, but that situation was freaking loser central. John. Yeah, I got to agree. That was a loser. You know, I, I actually like Scotty Pipper, but he's got some loser moments in this series big <laughs> yeah. time, and that was one of them. He definitely does. I mean – you know, when Phil, you know, I love the way the story goes. Phil walks up to him and says, Scotty, are you in or you're out? And he's like, I'm out. <laughs> what? Yeah. You dumb mofo. It almost changes your perspective on him, right? Because you didn't know that at the right. time. Right, 100%. All right, next question. Michael Jordan goes off and gallivants you know, with the White Sox uh, minor league baseball organization, the Birmingham Barons in 1994, ended up with a 202 batting average over 430 at-bats, had about 30 stolen bases, put up some pretty solid numbers for his given situation. Jordan as a baseball player, leader or loser? Dan. Leader. And again, I'm going just on what's in the documentary conversation with dad dad told him to go chase it it was a dream of his as a kid the nba the media was killing him at the time that 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 third championship in the in the first three-peat he just looked like a different human being so i think it was a great f you to the media and it was an opportunity to go chase something down i'm gonna give him a leader on that john tough one because a lot of me says, how do you walk away from three championships? But if you watch that and you see the pressures and everything, um, I, I got to say leader because let me tell you what, the hardest thing in sports is hitting a round ball with a round bat and a guy who hadn't played it in how many years mm-hmm. went out and played at a professional level. And I don't know if that speaks volumes to <laughs> him or how bad minor league baseball is, but <laughs> holy shit, that guy went out there and did it, you know? And so good for him. I got to give him a leader. Complete agreement. You know, the documentary did a really good job, and I get that it was all orchestrated by MJ himself. However, you can understand just the the burden of being the world's most famous athlete. And, you know, from the minute you are out of bed and out of your hotel room to the minute you return back there, just the constant nature of, of being, you know, under the scrutiny, under the camera, being asked questions, being watched and followed and um, 100% agreement and, and leader there with both of you guys. Next question. Pippen's decision to delay surgery on his foot before the final season, 97-98. Leader or loser? Big loser. Big loser. I couldn't believe it. Blew my mind. And I had a lot, of, a lot of respect for him, to be honest with you. When I had no idea that went down. Just for the sake of argument, why not? I'm going to go leader. Because, again, he got dicked around for God knows how long getting paid peanuts for the product that he was putting out on the court. Freaking dream team, 
all-star games freak the I think second in the league in scoring for X amount of years and you know to kind of get raked through the coals by the uh, front office and the media I think it was uh, I'm going to give him a leader for just giving a, a good F you back to them and saying I'll come back on my own accord I'm not giving up my damn summer is what he said yeah, I, I'm torn on this one, too. But at the end of the day, I have to say loser. At this point, uh, you know, eight episodes in, I'm starting to think that Scottie Pippen isn't that bright, honestly. Like, he, 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 he's not dealing with a, a full deck of cards. I, I, honestly, I, and I never knew this about him. And, again, just the fact that all this is coming to light and all of these opinions are being made with Scottie's you know, blessing again shows that Scotty was okay <laughs> with it. Right. Dude. They can't hide from it now. Right. Decisions been made. The bet has been made. You sleep in it now. Yeah, no. It, but the fact is he's up there. He's, you know, uh, kind of just, again, playing that second fiddle to MJ, regardless of the toll it takes on himself. Even all these years later, it, he's not that bright. Yeah. Loser. <laughs> all right. Next question. Phil Jackson's decision to let Rodman go to Vegas in the middle of that final 97-98 season. Phil Jackson, leader or loser? Dan. I'm going <laughs> to go leader. Rodman is a freaking wing nut. I love Rodman. He is my hands down my favorite basketball, NBA basketball player of all time. And not because of the dyed hair and everything. But he had to step into a role that he didn't expect to step into because Scotty was out. I think he was at a point where he was going to go off the deep end if he had to spend another another minute in that role. He honestly expressed his needs in that given situation. And Phil obliged, and Michael went out there and got his ass and brought him back. So I think Phil knew what he had to bring him back when he needed to bring him back. I'm going to go leader. I got to agree, man. I, I think – from a managerial standpoint, making that decision at the time he made it look freaking nuts, especially like when you first hear about it, like you shitting me. How does that happen? How can that possibly happen? But the fact that you're smart enough to know that, yeah, we're, we're going to treat everybody equally, but certain people got to be uh, coddled a certain way. Right. MJ, Michael Jordan was the greatest player ever who lived. He was still treated a little differently. Yeah than B.J. Armstrong, right? So for him to make that decision to let Dennis Rodman do what he did during the time that he did it, I felt like that's ballsy, but that's being a leader. And he got back Rodman. Yeah. I I agree. I I think it was a, a leader move all the way. You know, leadership is not linear. Leadership is, is different in, in so many different ways, shapes, and forms, and personalities, and, and is more of an art than a science. And his gut feeling and his, his leadership instinct says, I need to get one of my key people a break. And, and well, it was longer than 48 hours. <laughs> he, also, he also knew he had the leadership in Michael Jordan to fix it if it went awry. And ultimately, that's what happened. That's and a it's great a great point. example, too. You, you give up the, the small battle, right? You give up the battle for the war. Right. It was, it, it wasn't about winning, you know, out of that, out of that break. It was about winning in the NBA finals in June. And I think that that was the, so he made, made a decision where in the moment it probably looked awful 
but he had the vision and the wherewithal to say, you know, this is going to help us over the course of the long haul, 82 game season in the playoffs leader, hundred percent. And he had Michael, De- Michael Jordan, right? <laughs> right. I mean, so <laughs> Phil, Phil was smart enough to know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, I, I don't envy his position as a manager and head coach. A lot of times, you know, when you're dealing with the, the best player of all times, but knowing that to, to sacrifice the little battle to win the war and that uh, if I need to, this guy is going to make sure this, this gets all taken care of. Yeah. It was a yeah. ballsy decision, man, but awesome. I love yeah. that they showed that, by the way. Yep. And he knew, you know, uh, you know, eight years prior to that or whatever it was, that Jordan was carrying the team. Yeah. And that, you know, to carry them for a week or whatever it might end up being, he probably had enough bullets in the chamber to be able to make it through. It, yep. It's like when one of your studs goes on the DL, right? You just kind of try to break even and stay at 500 and weather the storm. Yep. And ultimately, I think Phil's decision led to the, uh, them being able to overcome uh, some of that other adversity late in this, that season and, and get to that ch- sixth championship. Last question. This is going to be the hardest one of them all. Uh-oh. You know, the, the documentary has done an absolute brutal job on Jerry Krause. Yes. So my question is, Jerry Krause, <sighs> leader or loser? John. You got to think about the team that he assembled, right? And the championships that he won. And, but boy, it makes it seem like he didn't have control <laughs> over anything. I'm going to say he's a leader. He had, he kept the best man under contract and, and the best coach and figured out a way to win six championships out of eight years. I, I'm going to give him his leader. Dan, what say you? I'm going to go, I'm going to say. I'm going to say loser, <laughs> which is easy to do. <laughs> it is. And I feel bad like because I do agree with a lot of what you said, like the construction of the team, but just the lack of social, emotional intelligence. And when he said things that he said, it was like, is it, yeah, the guy put the team together, but is he trying to throw a dagger out there right now? It, like in this moment to, to, to cause them to fall short. And I think he gets, he definitely gets painted probably a lot worse than maybe, I don't know, but he, he gets painted pretty friggin' bad in this, in this documentary and just the snippets of things that you, you've heard from him over the first eight episodes. I'm going to have to go loser. Yeah. I'm going to say leader and, and, you know, Hitler, Hitler was a leader and, you know, not that I'm comparing Krauss to Hitler, but all leaders are not created equal. And he, he did assemble the team. He did, he, he did a job, and he did it as well as anybody has ever done that job. But, gosh, he was so inadequate as a person. Yep. A hundred percent. And it just is, is too bad because he couldn't see the forest through the trees. Agreed. He could have he won ten championships. This yep. stupid ass. Exactly right. <laughs> and they had, the, they had the money to do it. And nobody was yearning to break it up. Nobody was yearning to, you know, him. exactly. And, and ultimately it was only because of his own personal greed and, and wanting to get the credit. And, you yep. know, he, he was a leader, but he could have been so much better. Yep. I'll go with that. I'm still going Great. loser. I'm not changing my answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He can definitely be both. Let me tell you what. 
double L. <laughs> Great job, you guys, on Leader or Loser. Great segment right there. Awesome. I love it. I love it. And, hey, that brings uh, episode three to a close. John Vigu, the skipper ah. of the uh, Lady Alliance Softball Club down there in Florida. He's got a good right-hand man sitting next to him on the bench, spitting seeds at each other. <laughs> Great, uh, John. Absolute pleasure getting to uh, getting to speak with you tonight. Really appreciate you being on with us. And like I said earlier, just a like a ton of great great information for those that are coaching and and parents of athletes right now. So really appreciate you being part of the episode this week. Well, I thank you guys. Thanks a lot. And uh, I got to say, I'm blessed to have met Joe and have him with me on this journey of coaching elite girls softball. And I really appreciate you guys having me on today's show. And uh, let me leave you with this. All those that are out there coaching, do it for the love of the game. Um, But remember that uh, you go home with your kids and make sure that they love you and that they love playing for you. Because if they don't, you could ruin long-term relationships with them, right? So love your kids, love coaching, and have a lot of fun. And thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. Uh, Our pleasure, John. Well, hey, there's no no way to trump that. So, John Vigu, thank you. That was episode three of the When Athletes Shit in the Woods podcast. Thank you so much for checking us out. Go out there, get dirty, get gritty, freaking get after it, and go get a W. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Thank you for joining us for the When Athletes Shit in the Woods podcast. Don't forget to tune in every other Wednesday for more stories, insight, and commentary from sports guys and gals who don't mind a little bit of dirt and grit. Always remember, it's great to have a plan and to go out and get after it with great enthusiasm and passion. However, always remember that the unexpected is just a step away.